Good day, listeners. Jonathan Darty here with another edition of the Pure Sex Radio program. How do we get to where we are today when it comes to sexual brokenness, confusion, and outright rebellion against God's design for sex? In this episode, our guest is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse, who is the founder of the Ruth Institute, an interfaith international coalition to defend the family and build a civilization of love. Our conversation was inspired after I read Dr. Morse's book, The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. In this book, she provides a timeline that breaks down the sexual revolution into its component parts so that people can better understand how we've reached our current period and respond to it with grace and truth. Dr. Morse shares the three big ideas of the sexual revolution. Number one, the contraceptive ideology. Society should do everything possible to separate sex and babies. Number two, the divorce ideology. Society should do everything possible to separate both sex and babies from marriage. And number three, the gender ideology. Men and women are completely interchangeable. It's the idea of self that's more important than the body. To learn more about Dr. Morse and her resources, visit ruthinstitute.org. For even more resources, visit BeBroken.org or check out links in today's show notes. And please rate and review the podcast after listening because this really does help others to find it. Pure Sex Radio is produced by Be Broken and we exist to help men, women, and families move from sexual brokenness to wholeness in Christ and equip others to do the same. Now let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Morse. All right, well we have with us Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse and so welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. It was enjoyable, very enjoyable having you on my program, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk with you some more. Yes, and I am really looking forward to this conversation, so I I don't want to waste any time, uh, but before we get into this conversation of kind of looking at so many of the, the, just the historical and overarching elements of the sexual revolution and how we've gotten to the point where we are today, can you give our listeners and our viewers just a little bit of background on yourself and also share maybe a little bit about what you do at the Ruth Institute? Uh, well, those two things are uh, greatly connected with each other. So um, my PhD is in economics. Uh, I taught economics at Yale and at George Mason University uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I was one of these career women who was planning to uh, get settled in my career and only then start a family. And so we were, I, I was about to get tenure and I said to my husband, I think it's time to start a family. And then we couldn't do, we couldn't, you know, we, we were faced with infertility. And so we had a long period of infertility, uh, which was a, a, the, a period of a great awakening for me as a kind of spiritual rebirth on my part and brought me back to the faith of my childhood, which for me was the Roman Catholic faith. And in that process, I learned really that you can't get everything you want just by trying harder and working harder and everything, you know. Um, and, and that career woman path that I was on was its own in its own way, a kind of the sexual revolution, a, a, one aspect of it, right? Uh, that the proper thing for a woman to do is to get educated and compete with men. And, you know, maybe if you have quirky lifestyle preferences somewhere down the road, maybe have a child or two, but nothing hysterical, you know. 
Um, and and so I was I had a period of very deep regret, you know, for how I had spent my 20s and 30s because it looked like, you know, I wasn't really going to have the opportunity to be a mother, which is what I really wanted the most of all. Um, so we resolved our infertility in 1991 by adopting a little boy from a Romanian orphanage who was two and a half years old when we got him. And six months later, I gave birth to a baby girl. And so these two children arrived within six months of each other, but they were, and they were three years apart in chronological age, but in fact, emotionally, they were pretty close to the same age. And we were, my husband and I were faced with, you know, dealing with some pretty serious consequences of really profound neglect. And, and we came to learn that a lot of the kids who came from Eastern Europe around that same time, they all had the same pattern of problems. Um, and so we became, you know, we were scrambling in place for like the next 10 years, really um, dealing with everything that, you know, that had to be dealt with, because if, if this boy was going to get better, it could only be me. He needed a mommy. He didn't need high quality daycare. He needed his mom, you know, and that was me by the grace of God. Right. So, you know, that, that was kind of put up or shut up kind of time. So long story short, I quit my tenured university profession uh, position, left the Washington DC area, moved out to Silicon Valley where my husband put us on the dot-com roller coaster, which turned out to be just fine. Um, and, and we took care of these two kids, you know, and that was part-time, part-time in research positions and stuff like that for the next little while. And um, during that period of time, it became clear to me because of my econ background and social science training, it became clear to me that number one, children need their parents. Mm -hmm. And this is just undeniably true. Children need their parents. And if, if we try to avoid knowing that, I think a lot in modern world, in the modern world, you know, we think high quality daycare will do it or, you know, just another pair of hands will do it, you know, but really kids need their parents. And I, I became aware of how many things we were doing as matters of public policy and social practices. They were making it almost impossible for a lot of kids to be with their own mom and dad throughout their whole childhood. And so as my kids got over, got older, we did, we had a period of time where we were doing foster care for a few years. Um, and then as the kids got into high school and stuff, I'm like, I, you know, I need to do something, I, you know, I'm ready to do something. They don't need me in the same immediate way that they did when they were little. Um, and so I decided to start an institution, um, the Ruth Institute which I thought was going to talk to young women about why they didn't wait until men, they didn't need to wait until menopause to have their first child, you know, that it would be okay if you got started in your twenties, you know, um, but uh, yeah, you know, that it'd be okay. And you wouldn't, your mind wouldn't turn to mush and it's actually a lot of fun. And you know, all these things that I felt young women wanted to know and, and wanted to hear from a woman of my age. That's what I perceived at that time. Um, but then Prop 8 happened. I was in California, in San Diego, and um, the ballot measure to for marriage to be one man and one woman came up, you know, and I didn't feel that I could in good conscience sit that out and say, that's not my issue. I don't want to deal with gay stuff. You know, I really felt I had to get involved because I could see that if that's if if marriage were redefined to remove the gender requirement, to, to make marriage no longer a gendered thing, that that was going to have a terrible impact on the society's understanding that marriage is about connecting moms and dads to each other and to their kids. I couldn't sit it out. So therefore, the Ruth Institute has ended up quite in spite of my plans, 
um, has ended up being kind of a full service agency against the sexual revolution. You know, and you it's like you you lift up one rock and there's another oh, another whole bunch of creepy crawlies under that rock, and then there's another rock, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is all connected. Um, so that's what we do. You know, we call mm-hmm. attention to that, and we write and speak and have podcasts and all that kind of thing to help people understand what's really going on. Yeah. And I love what you're doing in that public sphere. Um, in fact, uh, uh, what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about is really related to this book that you wrote, The Sexual State. Oh. Um, this this book really was, I can't believe it's actually been five years, actually, that you, since you wrote this, because it was 2018 that this came out. Um, right. But, uh, right. This was really insightful for me, especially for being in this space of ministry where I'm just Uh, 24-7, I'm dealing with sexual brokenness issues of various kinds. And what I wanted to ask you, because in that book, you really give this overarching kind of timeline of of looking at the interconnectivity between various aspects of what we might consider the sexual revolution that can feel in and of themselves as sort of these isolated, disconnected parts. And I think where we're at right now, especially for a lot of Christians today, there's a lot of Christians that are just feeling like they've gotten hit in the face with this wave of like, where did this come from? How is all of this happening? How do we yeah, get right. to a place where we literally don't know the difference between pronouns? You know, I mean, so can you help right. us understand um, maybe first of all, where where would you say the modern sexual revolution kind of started getting its start? Where did all of this begin? And then maybe take us how how we got to where we are today. Well, you know, in, in the book, I don't purport to do all of that. So, right, you know, right. let me let me just say what, what I try to do. Yeah, what I try to do in the book is to is to break the sexual revolution down into its component parts so that people can get a feel that that it that it's not as complicated as it looks like. You're, and, and thank you for mentioning the date of publication. I, it was published in 2018. And if it were simply a catalog of crazy things that were going on in 2018. Of course, it was out of date the moment it was printed because just, you know, more and more crazy things have been happening. But if you can see, there are really only three big ideas that they're dealing with, right? And if you can master those three big ideas, then you don't feel so overwhelmed when some new piece of craziness comes at you because you can go, oh, I recognize that. I know what that is. And I know roughly how to respond to it you know, uh, kind of thing. So that's what that, I think that's the lasting value of this book. And I, I think it will continue to be a value for a long time because we're not, we're nowhere near out of the woods on this thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but the, the three big ideas, I, I, I categorize it this way. The sexual revolutionaries hold that a good and decent society should do everything possible to do three things. And these are two, three completely crazy things as it turns out. But the first one is that society should do everything possible to separate sex and babies. Okay. So you can have sex, you can have a lifetime of sex and never have to worry about the responsibilities of the baby. That that is their vision of a good society. And I refer to that as the contraceptive ideology. And it obviously includes all the different things like the pill and IUDs and all of that. And abortion, right? Because abortion is the ultimate backup plan in case of contraceptive failure. But the underlying goal here is to make it so you can have a lifetime of child-free, care-free sex, and that this will actually be a good thing, right? 
And, and if you, if you, if you're quirky and you, you know, maybe you want to have a baby someday, well, that's fine for you, but society has no need to be concerned about the connection between sex and babies. Okay. That's an old taboo. Um, there's all these taboos around sexual activities. The taboos are harmful. They're useless. We should get rid of them. You know, we'll all be better off. If we get rid of them. So that's the contraceptive ideology. Um, the second idea, big idea, is that we should do everything possible to separate both sex and babies from marriage. So separate both sex and babies from marriage because, you know, no self-respecting individual wants to be stuck with a person for the rest of their lives. That's a taboo. The idea that you should stay married for the sake of the kids, you know, that's so out of date. We don't need that. It's, uh, it's too big of a burden, so on and so forth. Well, behind that is the idea that kids don't really need their parents. You know, mm -hmm. and the kids are so resilient. They're going to be fine no matter how many times you switch out your partners, no matter how many times you change their living arrangements, no matter how many boyfriends you bring into the house. No problem. No problem. If you're happy, your kids will be happy. End of story. You know, so we call that the divorce ideology. And it obviously includes not only divorce, but also anything that deliberately separates a child from one of their parents. So except for unavoidable tragedy, because, you know, people die and become mentally sure. ill and, you know, things do happen. You right. have a backup plan to deal with that. But, you know, to deliberately say never will you have a relationship with this person who is your other parent, that's that's wrong. You know, I mean, we hold that that's wrong. And that's what um, the, the buying and selling of eggs and sperm does that. Okay, it, it's it's a plan from the beginning of the child's life that they're never going to have a relationship with their other parent. And none of that would be possible without the government helping, you know, to say you and you alone have parental rights. Um, so, so there's that. And then, the, and then the final one is what I call the gender ideology. And it's the thing that most people are um, thinking about most of the time, I suppose, when they're worried about these issues. And that is the idea that men and women are really uh, completely interchangeable. There's no real substantive difference between men and women. Um, this is early feminism, early feminism basically saying, if you see differences between men and women, it's evidence of some kind of uh, injustice. We have to wipe out all those injustices. And now that has morphed into um, your body is not something so substantial. If you want to be a man, if you want to be a woman, you can change the sex of your body. And everybody needs to go along with that because your, your idea is of more value than the substance of your body. So underlying that whole thing is that the idea is the idea that the body is nothing particularly substantial. It's not it's not really who you are uh, in any way, and you can change it and manipulate it. And and what's that that ideology has within it feminism, the the homosexual, the normalization of homosexuality, the claim that homosexuality is a fixed immutable trait. Um, and the ideas of transgenderism, all of that is wrapped up um, in, into the gender ideology. And so, so that's how I analyze it. Each one of those components has its own history. And in the book, I go through, you know, each like who made, who, who thought of this or what were they thinking? You know, uh, went through that and, and also went through um, some um, trying to help people understand the propaganda uh, around each one of those mm -hmm. ideas. Cause you can see they're not true. Right. And if you're going to try to build a society around them, 
it's not going to work. You know, it's yeah. not going to work. So you're going to have to really be doing a lot of footwork to keep it going. Yeah. And one of the things I've noticed too is we, you know, in the modern age, especially, we have uh, become very, uh, we promote and we highlight the idea of being scientific. And yet I think we're even running into challenges now with that when it's like, okay, if, if you're going to claim to be scientific and yet hold to these things that are just rooted in ontology, you can't make those same assertions because now you're contradicting just good biology. But, but before we get to some of those kind of things, what do you think is the, as you look at these things of the, uh, you know, the contraception ideology, the divorce ideology, the gender ideology, what is what is the target that is being aimed at here? Like, what are what's the motivation for this revolution? Um, we, and I'm not saying that it's singular. There may be multiple. But when you think about like, what is the ultimate goal here? What are some things that you have found in your research, or that you have, you would state towards that? Well, uh, first of all, I want to say the underlying problem with all three of these ideologies is that these people despise. And I, I use that word advisedly. I know just what I'm saying. These people despise the human body and its limitations, particularly the the obligations that flow from the sexual power that relate us to other people. Right. So they resent the fact that sex makes babies. They resent the fact that as a parent, they have responsibilities to these children. They resent the fact that their body is either male or female, and they may not be pleased with that in some way. You know, there may be inequalities that they don't like, or there may be, you know, for some reason, they don't like the gendered nature of the human body. Right. Um, and so the, uh, that's the underlying reality is they do not like the embodied nature of the person. And so this is a deeply pagan thing that we're dealing with, guys. We, and we, we as Christians need to understand the incarnation is our central truth claim that God himself came to earth in a human body, in a human body. He didn't need to do any of that. He, mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't need to create right. us in the way that we are. And he didn't need to come to earth. You know, but God is the author of of these things, of, of our our embodiedness, and people resent it. So it's a, it's a very radical form of rebellion against God. And Christians need to understand this is not something um, that you can pussyfoot around with. Okay, you cannot you cannot make nice with this thing. This is a hundred percent at odds with who we are as Christians. You know, in the embodied nature of of the human person. So. That's the, I, I would say that's the bedrock answer to your question. Um, so is the, there are so other you, kinds of answers I can give. So, so would you maybe state that as the goal is trying to be liberated from an embodied state? Is that kind of how you maybe would say that? Is that, that's the aim? I mean, eventually I want to be sort of able to have a consciousness that's separate from my body. Do you know, I think that's right. And and if people haven't thought about it very much, they'll they'll think that's freaky. But I will tell, and it is freaky. Let's be it honest, is, it yeah. is crazy. But right, but but um, some of the advocates of transgenderism are moving down the path to transhumanism, and the idea of transhumanism is just what you say to to you know somehow be liberated from the confines, the confines and the constraints of the human body to be somehow a a um, amalgam of machine and man, 
you know, mm -hmm. so that we can extend our lives and we can be healthier and we can be better, you know, and improved and all this type of stuff. And of course, this is the, the, the kind of person who fantasizes in this manner has a one plan for himself and another plan for the peons, you know, who don't have the money or who aren't smart enough or, you know, whatever, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's, not, it's not something that can be universally achieved. You know, if you if, if you think about it for very much, but, but yeah, transhumanism is um, at the end of the line for and explicitly so for some of these people. Now, what are we seeing, and and what are you seeing as the as some of the collateral damage and just the fallout of all of the falseness yeah. of this sexual revolution? What are you seeing? How are you seeing that affecting real lives and families and children and you know communities? Well, let me answer you this way, Jonathan. Just this past week, I was at a, a, a conference, 1,400 people in a coliseum in, in North Carolina. And I, I gave a 45-minute talk on these themes, you know, the sexual state, and said a little bit about each of the ideologies. Afterwards, a young lady came up to our booth, and she was choking back tears. And she could barely get the words out. She, finally, she said, Dr. Morse, I, I've never heard an adult say that divorce is hard on children. Mm. You're the first person I've ever heard say that. My parents were divorced when I was five years old and my little sister was two. And we've been dealing with the fallout from it for our whole lives. And, you know, thank you so much for saying something. Right. And when I look at that, when I think about the children of divorce and what they go through and how little support they get, it's it really, honestly, it's infuriating. You know, if you're like yourself, think about it. it. It really, children should not have to go through what these kids go through, you know, and, 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 and we shouldn't be telling them you'll be fine. If you're not fine, we'll take you for therapy. We'll put you on medication so that you're fine. You know, they shouldn't be fine, right? right? Your, your mom and dad are half of who you are. You are the embodiment of your parents' love. And so when mom and dad say, we don't love each other anymore. We still love you, but we don't love each other anymore. Well, what does that do to the child? You know, wait, you love, you love me, but you don't love the other half of who I am. How does that make sense? You know, you're leaving a six-year-old to figure that out. Yeah, even a child can ask you the know, question. They, well, then will you? When will you stop loving me? Right. There's a sense in which there's that fear. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and. And the people who have been studying this, and it's now 20, 30 years that this has been examined in the study. There's, there was a very famous study, a 25-year um, following of children of divorce. And this was like Marin County, California, um, I want to say late 70s, you know, kind of the first round of kids who went through this. And everybody's so optimistic. Oh, they're going to be so much happier because their parents are happier and yada, yada, yada. Well, every year that went by, it became clear that that this was not true, right? Mm -hmm. And that, and in fact, the the researcher who inter interviewed these same kids, you know, year after year for twenty five years, um, he said actually, it's not that they, it, it isn't simply that they don't get over it. It's that as they mature, as they start to build lives of their own in late adolescence, young adulthood, all of the problems crescendo. They don't go away. They crescendo because that fear of rejection that concern about, do I have what it takes to, to keep a marriage together? What was wrong with me in the first place that my parents couldn't stay together? You know, 
all and and then whatever other wounds there may be from the very specific things that the kids went through um you know we know statistically you can easily see that children of divorce have, are at risk for um for divorce themselves and have mm -hmm. a harder time trusting and have a harder time forming relationships you know so these are problems that simply don't go away we're, we're just kidding ourselves about that so that to me that's one of the biggest ones that i see one of the biggest um it, it, it's big in that it's both fund it's fundamental because the love of your parents for each other is the foundation of the de development of your personality really you know so it's a fundamental thing and it's very mm -hmm. widespread and people are like, oh, well, that ship sailed. We can't talk about divorce anymore. You know, right. it drives me crazy, John. So let me ask you this, because I know that um, I don't think there's anybody in our audience anyway that would that would say none of what you're saying is making sense. I can't see it in the culture. I don't know. I think everybody in our audience, at least, is going. Absolutely. We understand the consequences of divorce. We understand what happens when you're trying to separate, you know, sex from babies. We understand when you're trying to say that my body cannot tell me anything about my my humanity and my gender and all that. And yet I think there's also a lot in our audience who are saying, but I'm I'm fearful. I struggle with hope. I don't know what I can do about it because it feels like the wave is just uh, just too powerful. There's just too much of it happening. So what would you say, what can be done? What is being done in terms to try to curb this, in terms of trying to stand firm um, in what we know to be true? What can you say to that for our audience? Well, I think the first thing, Jonathan, is that people have to be confident that the church's teachings are correct. Right, because one of the things that the evil one does to us is to um, is to make us discouraged, to keep us from fighting back. See, if we don't fight back, then they get a, they have an empty beach. They can just take over, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, if you think about it from that perspective, you'll see that there are many things that take place in the culture, many bits of rhetoric that are really designed to keep us on the sideline, right? Uh, they're designed to make us feel like uh, we should be ashamed of what we think. We should be ashamed that we're Christians. Um, we, we, they'll, they'll present one person who's been injured and say, this person would be so much better off if you allowed divorce. This person wouldn't commit suicide if you guys would let go of your beliefs about gender and you know, so on and so forth. Um, it, that's all calculated to keep us from resisting what they're doing. So and when you put that in your mind and realize there are many, many other victims of the sexual revolution Right, that never get the time of day, that never get the media spotlight, that never get the support, right? And that's that's how it's accomplished. That that's part of that that's why the state is necessary. See, that's why I called the book the sexual state, because they they have to suppress a lot of information, you know, they mm -hmm. have to suppress a lot of voices. And you know, we know that that um you know censorship didn't start with COVID, you know, censorship with pro-lifers. And, and pro-marriage and pro-family people, we have been putting up with censorship and cance being canceled and, you know, being shunned and, and being deplatformed. We've been putting up with that literally for years that's been going on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, your, your first, your original question, what was your original? Oh, what can people do about it? Okay. So the first thing is you've got to be confident. You've got to be confident. You cannot allow yourself to believe that God gave us a bunch of rules that mean nothing. You know, that, that God created, God, the rules are not arbitrary. The rules are embedded 
in our bodies themselves, right? And embedded mm-hmm. in the nature of the universe, we're going to be much better off if we live in accordance with that. And I think a lot of people do know that and they're just, then they're just afraid. And the more people who are afraid, of course, the worse it gets because nobody, we silence ourselves. See, if they can get us to silence ourselves, that makes it a lot easier for them. Well, and I think also just one thing you shared earlier about that story of the young lady that came up to you and said, this is the first time I've heard an adult say that divorce hurts kids. Uh, There's a huge educational component, right? What we're doing even here on this podcast, what you do at the Ruth Institute, what we do in a lot of our uh, uh, materials. um, I believe that there's actually a lot of Christians, people who have faith in Christ that are very ignorant regarding a lot of these particular issues as they pertain to sexual brokenness. In other words, in some ways, maybe I could put it this way, the, the culture sometimes can do a better job of discipling people than the church um, because it's just constant, right? So um, what would you say, and, and what are maybe even some specific things that you have at the Ruth Institute that can help people get educated on policy or on some of these issues related to uh, design and, and how we are meant to function as human beings that are male and female? Right, right. Well, I would say that most of our material has that function in one way or the other. Okay. And so I've been working in this area literally since 2001 was my first book in this topic. Our website is full of information. You may go over there and be overwhelmed. There's so much information. Uh, but but the point is, I, w- I want you to look at that and, and have confidence that all of these points can be defended and they can be defended at a very deep level. You know, we have science on our side. That we're, as a culture, we're losing science. I, I meant to say this earlier, you know, I mean, if you've got a culture that is rewriting medicine uh, to, to, to remove the words male and female, and to, that, that the culture is saying that men can have periods, you know, when the culture is talking like this, uh, or, or more profoundly, that scientific truth is determined by whoever has the checkbook and whatever they want it to be, you know, because that's approximately what the federal government does with its research money, right? And we have evidence of, we have already have evidence of that. Okay, that's not science. Whatever that is, that's not science. So we're losing science in order to defend the indefensible, the sexual revolution. So um, so definitely the, the simplest way to get involved with the Ruth Institute is to sign up for our weekly newsletter uh, because you'll hear from us every week. And if you read that every week, you will be very well informed and you will get a very good idea of how to respond to the different issues. Okay. And then we have some of our material organized into what we call resource centers. And so we have a resource center on transgenderism, resource center on fatherhood, resource center on what we call demographic winter, which is underpopulation, population decline, right? Which nobody talks about that. Um, And then we also have a very active YouTube channel that has playlists. So for instance, the interview I did with you, Jonathan, is now on the playlist that we have on pornography. And there Mm -hmm. are probably a half dozen, at least a half dozen other interviews on that topic on various aspects of dealing with pornography. So there are a number of ways in, depending on what you are interested in, the individual listener or viewer is interested in. Um, There there are plenty of ways in, um, and we would welcome anybody and everybody to get involved with what we're doing. That's for sure. We need all hands on deck. (laughs) No question about it. Right, right. 
Well, as we wrap up here, I just want to remind our listeners and our viewers that uh, what we've been talking about largely has been what uh, Dr. Morse has written in her book, The Sexual State. I highly recommend it. Um, just be, be warned. Um, she's going to go into the deep end on controversial topics, and I love it. So, um, uh, Dr. Morris, just any, any final comments that you would want to make, just to especially any kind of hope that you would want to offer to some of our listeners yes. and viewers that, again, are just feeling fearful in the time in which we're living in, in history? Yes, I had a very hopeful thing happen to me just this past weekend, Jonathan. Uh, I, I was speaking at this conference, as I mentioned, and there were 1,400 people in this auditorium, in this you know coliseum, and they were so relieved to hear me say what I said. They were so, um, you know, really, they were just, they were they were joyous. So I want you to know that you are not alone. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing you need to know. You are not alone. Jonathan puts on an event. If other people are putting on events, you get yourself together with people so that you mm -hmm. know that you're not alone. We have created a, um, a 15 minute talk called Boldly Defending the Family. And it's basically a defense of traditional Christian sexual ethics. And that, that we are giving away, we're, we're selling a flash drive, you know, a little flash drive like this, um, that has the script for the talk. It has the slides. So you can show this thing yourself. Um, but you can see that at the end of a couple of my talk, my recent talks, you'll see how I do it, how I lay it out and how it can be done. You know, um, so I, I want you to be hopeful and confident that it can be done, that your values can be defended. And you don't have to kind of pick and choose and think, well, this is too extreme. People will listen to me if I talk about this, but if I go too far, they won't listen to me anymore. That might be true that they'll stop listening to you, but you still need to go the distance to recover the whole of the Christian sexual culture, which we have lost, right? And it's been replaced piecemeal by this other thing called the sexual revolution. You need to get back to having a picture of what the big picture looks like, because that's what needs to be defended now. Yeah. Well, Dr. Morris, this has been awesome. And I know, of course, we can only scratch the surface on, on this, but uh, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for what you're doing at the Ruth Institute. We're going to be sure to put all of that information in the show notes, especially about what you just mentioned about that flash drive. I think that's an incredible idea. Um, but thank you for uh, being a voice in this space and having the courage to step into this and uh, and for being with us here today. Thank you so much. Well, I'm so glad to do it, Jonathan. And people should definitely go to YouTube and watch our interview with you because we had a lot of fun. And uh, that was that. I'm sure that interview is going to be very helpful to a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. Well, listeners, uh, be sure to check out the show notes because we're going to have all those links in there for the Ruth Institute and the book and the flash drive. And of course, we're here to help you take your next best step on your journey to sexual wholeness. And so uh, we're glad that you've been with us and we look forward to seeing you back here again next time on the Pure Sex Radio program. Take care. Pure Sex Radio is paid for by Be Broken Ministries. Visit us online at puresexradio.com.